0: Well, good morning, Olathe campus. I'm the old guy. Um, but it is a delight to be with you, and uh, I appreciate Nathan's kind words, and I'll uh, try not to break anything, Okay, I promise. But it is a delight to be with you. And I do give you warm greetings across our city, our campuses, our elder leadership team, our staff. Uh, it, is a, it is a great joy to be a part of such a remarkable church family that's having impact across our city and across our country and across the globe. So. Again, greetings to you. My bride, Liz, is not with me this morning. Uh, We just celebrated our 39th anniversary. So she's a woman of long suffering. Just want you to know that. Uh, We also have two grown children, Schaefer and Sarah. One lives in the Bay Area, one lives here. Uh, And uh, our empty nest is filled with a 100-pound dog named Harley, a golden doodle. So that's our life a little bit. So again, great to be with you this morning. You know, happiness is one of our greatest and most compelling human longings, isn't it? All of us want to be happy, and uh, the question is, is happiness possible, and if so, how do we find it? What is the path to the happy life? It's fascinating to me that researchers from interpersonal neurobiology and other disciplines are studying this phenomenon that is often called the warm glow of the human experience. What does it mean to be happy? Researchers have been doing a lot on this lately, if you followed research, and what are they finding? What are happiness experts finding? Well, one article recently, probably the most prestigious, is the Medical News Journal, and interestingly, the title is called, Generosity Makes You Happier. Hmm. And here's what they say. This is the results of their study. It says, we found that all participants who had performed or had been willing to perform an act of generosity, no matter how small, viewed themselves as happier at the end of the experiment. Now, isn't it fascinating that contemporary researchers are discovering what brilliant Jesus declared over 2,000 years ago when Jesus, in his brilliance, said to a first-century audience, it is more blessed, and literally the word to use, happy. It is more happy to what? It is more happy to give than to receive. Now, I do admit that happiness and joy, at least in the English language, has a bit of difference. It's actually close cousins to happiness. Happiness and joy are connected. And like happiness, what we are going to discover is joy is not found in getting more, but in giving more. Joy is not found in getting more, but giving more. This is the transforming truth that Paul leaves the Philippian church with as he ends his letter. And I want us to explore this together. If you have your Bible, open with me to Philippians chapter 4. Now, as a church family across our campuses, we have been discovering this remarkable, brilliant, inspired letter called Philippians. And Paul's letter to a church in Greece is focused on joy. Chapter 4, if you have your Bible open. Now, let's remember that he is writing from a Roman prison That wasn't a picnic, I assure you. And it's so surprising that emerging in this letter from a prison, the predominant theme is joy. And this seems surprising, doesn't it? But we have learned in our series and what we learn in this text is joy is primarily relational, not primarily circumstantial. And we have said that the definition of joy from both theology and interpersonal neurobiology is this. Joy is when we experience someone being delighted to be with us joy is a foundational relational construct last week in the earlier parts of chapter 4 we discovered that joy a joyful life is a prayerful life a virtuous life now on the heels of that as we press more deeply into chapter 4 verses 10 through 20 we are going to discover that a life full of joy is a life full of generosity now, I want you to notice as we walk through this text, if you are taking notes or re- arranging to sort of the furniture of your mind, this is how the text flows. Paul, as he finishes the letter, gives three heartfelt encouragements to the church at Philippi about generosity. And this is how the text flows. The first encouragement we're going to see in verses 10 through 13, and that is generosity unleashes joyful gratitude. It unleashes joyful gratitude. Secondly, as we enter into verses 14 through 17, you'll notice he moves this idea that generosity advances the gospel mission. And then he builds to a literary crescendo, as he often does. In the last encouragement, in verses 18 and 19, that generosity pleases God's heart. So this is where the Apostle Paul goes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The first encouragement of the heart for generosity is found again in verses 10 through 13. And that is generosity unleashes joyful gratitude. Let me reread verses 10 through 13. This is God's word. The apostle Paul said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and plenty hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I want you to notice how Paul sets up this text. In verse 10, he launches this section with a sense of great emotional exuberance. In fact, the grammatical structure of this text tells us that he rejoiced in the Lord greatly. In fact, the Greek text brings the sense of mega. So we may think of the idea of mega joy in English. And what I think is really appropriate in our context, it's like Paul has won the mega lottery, right? When you observe, maybe you've won a lottery, I don't know, uh, but when you observe someone who wins the mega lottery, right, what happens, right? The lottery jackpot. They go bonkers, right? They're jumping up and down. They have smiles on their faces. There's high fives, right? Um, They turn in their resignation, of course, at their workplace right away. Uh, There's smiles on their faces, but there's a sense of extraordinary joy in winning the jackpot. This is the jackpot of joy, and this is the grammatical structure which Paul, in a prison cell, communicates to the Philippians. And what is unleashing this joy in his heart and unleashing this relationship is a microburst of joy in Paul's heart that is founded in their generosity. Paul is literally feeling giddy with joy, and that's what generosity does. Generosity makes the greatest difference in the world. Now, one of my favorite writers of the 19th century is Charles Dickens, and we know him most For a Christmas carol, what we often think is a message just about Christmas, and it is about Christmas, but y'all, it's a message for every day. The Christmas carol Charles Dickens tells is a timeless story, and at the heart of it is a sense of the timeless nature of generosity in its change, the transformational joy of generosity. And remember that story? Dickens' heart, a resting story, paints this very painfully pitiful, rather, I will say, repulsive picture of Scrooge, right. lonely, miserly, self-absorbed, joyless, hard-hearted, Ebenezer, right? But then, you know, in Dickens' story, in his 19th century context, there is this massive transformation in this Scrooge's heart. He has visited an apparition, a nightly three-fold ghost, right, of Christmas past, present, and future. You remember that. And by the morning time, Scrooge's heart is changed. And the first thing he does in the morning is he unleashes this sense of joyful generosity. The first thing he does is give this large gift to charity. But my favorite moment is when he buys the big Christmas turkey, right, for his employee that he's so miserly, the Cratchit family. And the favorite literary scene, I think this is his crescendo literary scene, is that Scrooge becomes giddy with joy when he arrives at his nephew Fred's family for dinner. If you've seen it or read it, you know how brilliant this is. There is a warm glow flowing from Scrooge's joyful generosity. There is an indescribable delight of being with them in relationship. And this is one of the most profound pictures of the joy of the human heart that we have from Charles Dickens in his brilliant work, A Christmas Carol. And he helps us understand that acts of generosity have this extraordinary way of transforming our lives. Even in the most dire circumstances, generosity can penetrate the most discouraged, hardened, and cynical heart. Now, the Apostle Paul is anything but Scrooge in this character, but his sense here, if we understand the text in the the flow, is that he is experiencing a Scrooge-like generosity Of a giddy joy. He is emotionally exhilarated. Now, while Paul is incredibly grateful for the Philippians' financial generosity, and that's what this text is about, we must not miss the most important thing. And that is, the Apostle Paul is most joyfully grateful for his close knit friendship and relationship with the Philippian Christians. Now, hear me carefully. This text tells us that Paul saw the financial gift from the believers at Philippi as tangible evidence of their ongoing, deepening, cherished, intimate relationship, their partnership. And this warmed his heart with a joyful glow. Now, I experienced this kind of joy this past week. Uh, I had a delightful lunch at Panera with Pastor Stan Archie. Pastor Stan Archie uh, leads in Kansas City on Troost Avenue, Christian Fellowship Baptist Church. Uh, this church has been a sister church for Christ Community for over two decades. For over two decades, Pastor Stan and myself and others, our friendships have deepened as church family, and we've encouraged one another with God's kingdom agenda for Kansas City. And it's been so delightful as we built homes together and done all kinds of things over the years. What a joyful time it was for us! post-pandemic, or at least less pandemic, to get together and have lunch and to share our friendship, to remember our partnering together, as well as, yes, the very big challenges and opportunities that lay ahead for us in Kansas City. Now, I have to say, our partnership as local churches over two decades has involved significant and generous sharing of financial resources. But it's the deep and long-lasting friendship, y'all, that continues to be the greatest sense of joy for our lives, the greatest sense of cementing our lives. And this is the joyful sense we get in Paul's letter to Philippi. Paul understands and wants us to grasp that the joy of a relationship is primary. And he navigates the financial gift with what, if you've listened carefully or read this text, with what I call a kind of literary and cultural delicacy notice most likely if we read a little bit between the lines without sort of forcing it paul recognizes that the financial gift that he would hope would come was kind of most likely slower in coming than he'd hoped for Or, or perhaps the philippian church had not had the opportunity right he mentions that there was something not exactly what he'd hoped yet Paul reminds the Philippians that he, like them, ultimately looks to God for their provision. Now, keep that in mind. So, at the end of the day, what he's saying is that Jesus is more than enough, even more than your gift. And Jesus reminds Paul, and Paul has learned to be content in whatever circumstances he found himself in. And you'll notice in the text that joy, generosity, and contentment are inextricably linked in Paul's thinking and his experience. Paul's ultimate confidence that he could face any day, that he could do all things through Christ to strengthen him, was in any circumstance, he was in Jesus' hands. And he was safe and secure in that. And regardless of life circumstances, be they bleak or bright, he knew the good shepherd, and when he knew the good shepherd, in following the good shepherd, there was no lack. This was the secret, remember he uses that word here? This was the secret of Paul's contentment. This was the fountainhead of joy. So continuing to encourage the Philippian believers to live generous lives, Paul reminds them first that joy is unleashed in generosity. But also notice where the text goes. That is, it also makes a massive difference. It unleashes great joy, but it advances the gospel mission. That's what generosity does. Look at verses 14 to 17. Yet, he writes, Paul, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership, the same word of fellowship, koinonia, with me in giving and receiving except you only. Except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Now, notice what Paul says. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, pay close attention to what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. Of all the churches Paul planted throughout the Roman Empire in the first century, there's no question to Paul that the church at Philippi stood out for its generosity toward Paul's pioneer church planting across the Roman Empire. Not only had it recently sent a financial gift, right, by way of Epaphroditus, but notice what Paul says. They had previously also supported Paul with a generous financial gift. That's a big wow. We don't know of any other church in the New Testament that did this at this level. So Paul is commending them. And with hearts of love and with eyes of faith, they believed in Paul and they embraced this very, we may say, high risk entrepreneurial mission. Now, I want us to step back from the 21st century and walk back into the sandals of the first century for a moment. Think with me for a moment the individuals that launched the gospel movement to the Roman Empire. They're often forgotten. It was through the generous financial wealth investment of people like Lydia. Remember, she's that first century businesswoman and that Philippian jailer who we read about in Acts 16 when Paul first comes to Philippi, who are converted to Christ and then use their influence and generosity to spread the gospel to the world. In a sense, in a very real sense, I stand... And you stand on the shoulders of Lydia and the Philippian jailer's generosity. That's stunning. And that is true in the unfolding story of Christ's community. Our growing gospel impact across our city and across the nation through Made to Flourish, it has now 4,000 pastors in the network. Our global partners from China to Africa stand on the generous shoulders of many, many Including George Underwood. Now, George Underwood, in the summer of 1988, when Liz and I packed up from Dallas, Texas after finishing seminary, packed up a 24 foot rider truck with our six month old son Schaefer in tow, and made our way from Dallas to Kansas City to begin Christ Community. We arrived on a hot summer day in 8963 Hauser Drive, next to Kansas. No congregation, no money, no building, no budget. And one of the first pieces of mail that arrived at 8963 Hauser Drive was an encouraging note and a check from our friend and business leader in Dallas, Texas by the name of George Underwood. He wrote a short note, Tom, I believe in what God has called you to do. God is going to use your church to impact thousands. And on it, was a check made out to our evangelical free church district for $5,000. It was the biggest check I've ever seen in my life. Today, when the name of Christ community comes up not only in our city but around our nation increasingly, I doubt anyone knows the name of Jordan Underwood. But I do, and God does most importantly. George's financial generosity through the eyes of faith and love for Christ and his mission, and many, many other pioneers of faith over these three decades at Christ's community are incredible. And we stand on their shoulders, each campus, all of us. This is the DNA of Christ's community generosity for God's glory has been a hallmark of our church family now for over three decades our most recent expansion of our beautiful downtown campus and Shawnee campus have been built on the shoulders of Christ community's generosity as is Olathe campus and every campus as we work together the joyful generosity each one of us unleashes advances God's gospel message And this is really, really important. Now, again, for a pastor, I'll be very transparent, to talk about financial generosity may seem self-serving. And you may be feeling a little bit of a pause right now. You may even have your guard up. I don't know your background with pastors. But let me encourage you, it's not because I want something from you. It's because I want something for you. And that is the great generosity and joy that's unleashed with it. I want you to notice how Paul says the very same thing in this text. In verse 17, if you have your Bible open, notice he said, It's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your account. Now, in the original language, it's even more emphatic. Because the New Testament is written in common Greek. Paul uses accounting language that captures both the temporal rewards of an investment and eternal both. Paul wants the Philippian believers to capture that their generosity, yes, their financial wealth generosity, was incredibly important. Not only for the mission, but how it would unleash generosity in their life. Paul's Motive was not that he wanted something from them. He trusted God for God's provision, but that he wanted something for them. And this is the invitation and heart of your church leadership at Christ Community. Notice the encouragement, heartfelt encouragement for generosity here. First, Paul says, generosity, yes, in terms of finances and wealth. There are other kinds of generosity for sure, time, talent, forgiveness, kindness. Yes, this text is about money. And Paul says, generosity with our money unleashes joyful gratitude in our lives and others. It advances the gospel mission, but notice where he goes, the last encouragement. It pleases God's heart. Look at verses 18 to 19. Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. With joyful gratitude, you'll notice Paul affirms that he has received this financial gift that they have sent by way of Epaphroditus. And what is truly outstanding and stunning in the New Testament is the metaphor Paul uses for this act of love. It's extremely rare and extremely important. Do not miss it. It's the metaphor of fragrance. Now, I love to run. Well, I really like to run. And I run regularly, and uh, I run different routes, but one is in a park near my house. And just the other day, I was running my route, and I'm running along the path, and it's wooded. And I'm running along, and all of a sudden, there was this amazing fragrance. It felt like someone had dropped a big perfume bottle on the, on the sidewalk. And I never stop when I run. But it was so overwhelming and beautiful and intense, I stopped. I thought, where is that coming from? And I looked to my left behind the bushes. Behind the bushes, I pulled them back, and there was this row of wild rose, rose bushes that were in full bloom. Their fragrance together was unmistakable. This is the picture Paul gives us of the generous life individually and of a faith community like Philippi. See, what is unique here is generosity has a virtuous and Christ-like fragrance. And Paul is pressing more into this metaphor of fragrance and notice that our generosity says it's like a sacrificial offering in the Old Testament which the priests had incense when they were sacrificing for the glory and worship of God. He is saying that that fragrance of your generosity put a smile on God's face. This is amazingly unusual in the new testament paul is raising the bar our generosity to others to god to his work pleases god in ways we cannot even begin to imagine it brings joy to god's heart and let's remember jesus himself is described as what the indescribable gift to us So Paul is reminding God's people joy is not primarily in getting, it's in giving. Now, our text this morning focuses on financial generosity. So that's where I want to have us reflect this morning, because the text leads us. It's not senior pastor or pastor's agenda. What does the text call us to reflect on this morning? It calls us to reflect on our financial generosity. And three guiding principles I would encourage you to think about as you reflect on your own generosity growth in this area. Three principles of reflection and application this morning. First, throughout Scripture, we understand from creation on, number one, that God owns it, not us. God owns it, not us. In Psalm 24, we read this very foundational where the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This means... As creatures, we are accountable to our Creator, and that we, as Christians, if you were a follower of Jesus, we are not ultimate owners of anything. Rather, we are stewards of everything. That means our material goods, our relationships, our time, even our bodies are not our own. Now, the Bible strongly affirms private property, right? It does. But we must not confuse private property with ultimate ownership. Number one, we are stewards of everything, even if we have a title for it or our name is on it. God owns it, not us. Secondly, throughout scripture, we see this principle of generosity, give first, not last. Give first, not last. Because we are not ultimate owners but accountable stewards, part of our worship is to give a portion back to God as an act of our worship. This is why the book of Proverbs gives us timeless wisdom and instruction in terms of generosity. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 tells us, honor the Lord with your wealth and the firstfruits of your produce. What does that mean in a non-agrarian context? It means that regardless of our income or wealth, electronic payments or whatever, that we give God the first, not the leftovers. Firstfruits are not the leftovers. Biblically, Giving our first fruits means we offer a tithe. That is, in a non-theocratic context, it was about 30% in the Bible. In a non-theocratic context, it's 10%. Now, throughout Scripture, the floor of God-honoring obedience, hear me careful, when it comes to financial generosity is a tithe. It's not the ceiling. The New Testament has a proper understanding of grace that does not eliminate the tithe, but raises the bar above the tithe. Now, parents, as you train your children in financial literacy and wise financial stewardship, encourage them early on in this process. Give first, save second, and spend third. We have this turned upside down often in our culture. All too often, we miss this, and the primary formation of financial literacy and wisdom is made in the home and modeled in the home. It puts them on a trajectory of financial health Teaching our children wise financial management begins there. Remember, God owns it all. That's what the scriptures clearly teach. Secondly, the scriptures clearly teach from beginning to end. We give first, not last. But third, it also teaches that the church is primary, not secondary in our giving. Throughout scripture, giving over and over again is located and tied to where we worship and the people we worship with. The language in the Old and New Testament is the household of God. For example, Nehemiah. God's people give to the household of God. That is the place and people they worship with. In the New Testament, Paul picks this up again in 1 Timothy 3.15, declaring that the church is now the household of God. That means the local church is the primary place we give to. Now hear me carefully. This doesn't mean that there are not other worthy kinds of giving we invest in. There are. But it does mean that our local church is to be given priority. Jesus said, Ultimately, it's a matter of the heart, isn't it? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And let me just say, one of the greatest indications of progress in your spiritual and virtue formation is the generosity of your time, talent, and treasure, particularly your money. And what I've discovered, the most content and joyful people are the most joyful and most generous. And giving throughout Scripture is proportional, right? We all have different capacities. And God looks at the proportion of our giving, not just the size. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. I was reminded of that recently. At our Leawood campus, after I'd given a message, this young teenage girl came up to me with this big smile on her face. She was bursting with joy. Her name's Jackie. Um, I know her parents well. And she said to me, Pastor Tom, I just had my first babysitting job, and with joyful encouragement of her parents, after her first paycheck, she brought a portion of her earnings to church as an offering. She said, Pastor Tom, I gave an offering today. What a thrill it was for me to share her joy of generosity. Jackie's learning. Like each apprentice of Jesus, regardless of our age, regardless of our financial realities, is that joy is not found in getting more, but in giving more. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text. It's not always easy because so often money and wealth have too much of us father it's not how much we have it's how much of what we have has us so lord may you make us an increasingly generous people thank you lord for the generosity of the christ community family and i pray that we would continue to experience the joy of generosity in greater ways individually and as a larger church family for jesus glory the advancement of his mission we pray amen